welcome back to the Upon This Rock podcast. My name is Max Thomas. Thanks for checking out the pod. All right, today we're going to do what I think, at least if I was listening to this, what I would want, because uh, that's just my personality. I would want some examples and uh, to get into some of the actual texts and stories. And so that's what I want to do today. I want to get into uh, some of the actual stories and, and see how this works out. So if you remember in the last episode, um, I used the analogy of Jesus being the image on the box of a puzzle. And the, you know, if, the, if the scriptures are a, a puzzle with all these pieces of different shapes and sizes and contours, and we're trying to fit all these things together, how do we know if we have it, the pieces put together correctly? Um, and like a puzzle, I, I, there's an image that we should end up with, and that image is the crucified and risen Jesus, that he's the image of God, that he's what God has to say, that when we want to know what God is like, the first place that we look is the crucified and risen Jesus, because God, as I quoted my, my pastor friend Brian Zond last episode, that God is like Jesus, that God has always been like Jesus. There's never been a time that God is not like Jesus, has not been like Jesus. And we maybe haven't always known this, but now we do. And and I would also throw in there that God will always be like Jesus. And so uh, we read from the person of Jesus, that Jesus is the Word of God to us. And I didn't get into this story, but a, a great example of this, and this we'll use this to kind of hop into the conversation, but a great example of this is actually... Um, in the the Gospels, uh, particularly in, I think it's Luke's telling, um, of the Mount of Transfiguration, right? Jesus, uh, first of all, if you go in, in, in Matthew's story, actually in Matthew 16, uh, the, the story really kind of opens with Peter getting this revelation that you are the Christ, you're the Son of the living God, and Jesus says, flesh and blood have not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven has given this to you. Immediately after that, Jesus then starts talking about the fact that he's going to go to Jerusalem and die. And Peter, the one who just got the revelation that you're the Christ, resists him precisely because, I think, because of that revelation. He says, well, hold on. If you're the Christ, you can't go go die. And what does Peter say, or what does Jesus say to Peter? Get behind me, Satan. So, Peter gets this revelation, but does not really understand that to be the Christ, the Son of God, means to die for the sins of the world. Jesus or, or Peter does not understand what that means for Jesus. And so then the very next scene we have is Peter going up with Jesus. It's Jesus taking Peter, James, and John. He goes up on the Mount of Transfiguration, and they have this encounter where Jesus' face is shining, and Moses and Elijah show up. And, and Moses and Elijah are um, representative, obviously, of the law and the prophets. And in, in Luke's telling, specifically, it says that they were talking about his, his soon-coming trip to Jerusalem. They're talking about his soon-coming crucifixion, that this is what Moses and Elijah and Jesus are talking about. And it's into that conversation. So picture this. Jesus is having some supernatural moment with, you know, dead Moses and Elijah. They're, they're there in some miraculous way present, and they are talking about his crucifixion. It is, and Peter, James, and John are listening in. Into that moment, the Father speaks 
and says, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. And what I would say is this. I think this can even help us with our our Bible reading, that when we correctly listen to Moses and Elijah, to the law and the prophets, what do we hear? We hear that they are in the same conversation that Jesus is, that they are talking about the crucified and risen one, that they're all saying the same voice. And, and sadly, many of us, we read the particularly the Old Testament, and then when we start talking about the end times, those two, anything basically but the present, when we start talking about the past or the future, we start thinking and reading and understanding God in these these different ways, mainly violent and retributive and angry at everybody and going to kill everybody and all of this kind of stuff. And Jesus came to, to save us from that. But Jesus says, well, he shows us here in this story that the law and the prophets are in conversation with him, that they speak about him. He tells us in other places in Luke 24, which is why I'm calling this series reading on the road to Emmaus, that the law and the prophets and the Psalms, they speak about him. And he rebukes the two disciples saying, if you would have read them correctly, this would not have been a surprise to you. You should have known that I was going to die. You should have understood what all of that meant if you would have read them correctly. In John 5, Jesus rebukes the Pharisees and the scribes and says, you search the scriptures because in them you think you have life, but they are that which testify of me. The scriptures speak about me, Jesus says. And then he continues just a few verses later, seven or eight verses later, and he says, Moses spoke about me. He wrote about me. Right? Abraham saw my day and rejoiced. The prophets in in 1 Peter, I think uh, 10 through 12, 1 Peter 1, 10 through 12, says the prophets, they look forward to what? To the crucified and risen Jesus, and they spoke about that day, and they rejoiced at seeing that day. So everybody is in the same conversation. All of the scripture is about Jesus. What is Moses about? It's about Jesus. What are the Psalms about? They're about Jesus. What is Isaiah and Ezekiel and Jeremiah about? They're about Jesus. That's the correct answer. That all of the scriptures testify of this one. Because this one, this crucified and risen Jesus, is the word of God, is the image of God, is the one who perfectly reveals God to us. And there is nothing in Jesus, excuse me, there is nothing in God that is not like Jesus. God is Christ-like and in him is no unchrist-likeness at all. It's not as if Jesus reveals 50% of God and then we have to find, figure out the other 50%. No, Jesus perfectly reveals the Father to us. If we have seen Jesus, we have seen the Father. When we look at this one from Nazareth, crucified, died, and risen, we are looking at the image of the invisible God, the, of, of the, the image of the invisible God, the icon of God. And so we need to read from Jesus, meaning he's our starting point, and we, we read backwards and forwards from him, from the crucified and risen one, and we also read for him. Meaning that 
he's the the end goal of all the scriptures he's the one we're looking to find he's the one that we should expect to see now that does not mean that he is confined in this tiny little box no no no. jesus will surprise us in all kinds of ways but those surprises will not be contradictory to who he is in his revelation god in himself this is part of the the classic doctrine of god that god cannot contradict himself god is the technical term would be simple. He he is not composed of multiple parts that are fitting together and whatever. No, no. He is just himself. He cannot contradict himself. He is, it's not as if he's part love and part justice and those two parts are just melded together as part of him. No, no, no. He is all love and all justice simultaneously simultaneously in a non-contradictory way so that whenever he acts in whichever way he acts it is fully his love and fully his justice and fully his mercy and fully his everything all at the same time because he cannot contradict himself and so how then so we read from jesus and for Jesus, because Jesus is the image on the puzzle box and said the edges, those most the most defined portion that I think we should start with. It's it's the crucified and risen one. And so I want to look at um, two stories today for sure. We'll see how, how long we we this takes. because um, I do want to actually get into the text here. And I want to look at two stories in particular. And um, from the New Testament, uh, that will, I think, help be an example to us. Because here's the, here's the wonderful part about the Bible, is um, the New Testament authors, they are not just making this up, you know, flying by the seat of their pants here. They are, they are using the same color palette as all the other writers of scripture meaning this they isaiah painted in you know whatever this shades of blue they're picking up that same color palette and painting with those same colors they are not doing something completely different and unique they are simply rereading israel's scriptures in light of jesus i mean okay one last thing, and then then we'll get into this because I think this is an important point. I mean, we just think about uh, Paul, the Apostle Paul. Here's a man who was a Pharisee, learned, studied under uh, one of the most famous rabbis, uh, uh, Gamaliel, I think is how you say it. And um, I mean, by all accounts, was a brilliant, brilliant teacher and theologian of his day. And so he knows Israel's scriptures in and out. And so he is reading Israel's scriptures. And he says of himself, I was zealous for the law, upholding all the law. And what did that lead him to do? It was precisely his reading of Moses, of the scriptures that led him to crucify the church. N.T. Wright points this out that Jesus or that Paul calls himself zealous and there's a famous Old Testament story of about a man named Phineas uh, who uh, killed someone who was openly fornicating, basically, um, as kind of a, this act of blasphemy. And Phineas takes this javelin, this spear, and spears these two and uh, staves off this plague. And God makes this covenant with Phineas for his zeal. 
And, and that's the word that's repeated in the story is that Phineas was the zealous man. And so Paul says, when I was under the law, I was zealous for the law. And so N.T. Wright, he thinks Paul sees himself as kind of this new Phineas and these this this new movement of Jesus followers as those that need to be basically exterminated, that they're blaspheming God. And so like Phineas, Paul is taking up weapons to to drive them out. Now, is that was that in Paul's mind? I don't know. But I, I think to me that makes sense. And those dots connect even in Scripture. So I think that's a, a very good hypothesis. But anyway, so Paul is reading the Scriptures and it's leading him to crucify, or I mean leading him to kill people and throw them in prison. He meets then Jesus on the road to Damascus. And then after that encounter, he doesn't start just making things up. He goes back to those same texts and he just rereads them in light of the crucified and risen Jesus that he just met on the road. And he's just reading them differently. And now the texts don't lead him to crucify and kill Christians. It leads him to suffer alongside them as the chief among them. Right, so his his life changes after he encounters the crucified and, and, and risen one, and he, he goes back to the same stories, and he reads the same stories in a different way. And that's actually what I want to look at. I want to look at a passage from Paul's letter to, to the Corinthians. And so I, 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 all that to say, this is, I think, what we need to do, is we need to go back to the text of Scripture, read uh, from Jesus, for Jesus, you could say in light of Jesus. And that was what the last episode was about, even though I just kind of ranted on here. It's it's something I, I think we need to talk even more about than we do. So 1 Corinthians 10 is where, where I want to be. Paul opens this chapter in a very interesting way. I'm actually going to read some of the text. I don't know if I've ever done this yet on the pod, is I actually read a couple passages of, of Scripture and uh, that way, if you're driving or doing something else, you don't have to pull out your Bible. You can just listen. But he opens chapter 10 by saying this. I, I read from the, the New King James because it's the anointed version. Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that all of our fathers were under the cloud, that all passed through the sea. So what is he talking about here? He's talking about the Exodus, the cloud that was by day, and then there was the pillar of fire by night. So they were all under the cloud, and they all passed through the sea. So he's talking about them being protected in the wilderness and then passing through the sea. But now look at what Paul starts to do. So all passed under the cloud, all passed through the sea, all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. Now, pause for a second. Does any of the Exodus texts talk about baptism, that the cloud was a baptism of sorts, that the Red Sea was a baptism of sorts. No, they don't. That theme gets pulled out in the New Testament numerous times, Paul, this being one of them. So here already we see Paul is reading the scriptures of Exodus, and he is seeing things there in light of the crucified and risen Jesus, baptism, where where 
Jesus was plunged into death and rose again. And our baptism, we can read this in Romans 6, is the same, that we are plunged into death and rose again. And so he sees that imagery in the story of, of the Exodus, that the the water that they passed through was like a baptism, that they went down into the watery grave and up just as Christ went down into the grave and up. So it's it's retrospective reading. It's it's seeing the crucified and risen Jesus and then looking back with that flashlight and and seeing what is always there. And here's a, an important point. This isn't making up things or inserting things into the text. This is having a new flashlight to look backwards into a room that you've already walked through. And now with a new light, you can see things that were always there. They were always in the room. You just didn't have the proper light to see them, right? That little picture in the corner was always there. You were just walking in the dark. And now that you have a light to shine, you can see what was always there. That's what's going on here. So he continues. Verse 3, that they all ate of the same spiritual food. Now, they ate of physical manna. But it, Paul calls it spiritual food, and they all drank the same spiritual drink. They all drank of the spiritual rock that followed them. Now, twice we get the story of Moses, uh, of water coming from the rock, of Moses striking the rock and water coming forth. There's some a Jewish tradition, and I don't know off the top of my head. I have it written somewhere, but I don't know off the top of my head what the Jewish source is the rabbinic source that uh, there was some teachings out there that this rock had followed them, right? And so it's, it's a kind of the beginning of their journey and kind of towards the end of their journey. And so this rock had followed, but now look what, look what Paul does. And whether that's true or not, we, we obviously don't know that the test that the text itself does not say that for the drink of the same spiritual rock that followed them. Right. And the rock was, Christ. Now just pause there. Does the story in Exodus or Numbers say anything about God showing up there, a theophanies, uh, an encounter with Jesus, anything like that? No. But Paul sees Christ as the one who was struck and water comes from him. Right? He knows that, we, we have that in the Gospel of John, that he's struck with the rod of man and water comes from him, the water of life comes from him and, and gives drink to those in the desert. And so Paul just outright says the rock that followed them was Christ. What, he doesn't say was like Christ. He doesn't say was akin to Christ. He doesn't say was a metaphor for Christ. He actually just says the rock that followed them was Christ. I don't know what we do with that other than to, you know, because we have no, I mean, listen, if I were to write a paper when I was in seminary and just to, you know, point something out in the Old Testament and say, you know, the axe head that floated in, uh, I think it was Elijah, or Elisha. 
and say that was Christ. They would go, they would, I would, and write a whole paper on it. They would fail me, right? Because that would be outside the hermeneutical bounds. But here's, this is what Paul is doing. He is reading retrospectively and he's seeing things in the light of Jesus that were always there that we just didn't have eyes to see that now in light of the crucified and risen Jesus become clear. But most of them, uh, but with most of them, God was not pleased for their bodies are scattered in the wilderness. Verse six. Now these became our example. So here's why I wanted to pick out this passage, these this passage of scripture is Paul explicitly says that this is what he's about to say and their stories act as a kind of general example to us. And I think therefore we can say the way Paul is interacting with these texts can also be an example to us. Okay. Uh, so they were an example to us that, uh, that we should not lust after evil as they lusted and do not become idolaters as some of them uh, did as is written, the people that sat down, they ate and drank and rose up to play. Verse 8, nor let us commit sexual immorality as some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 fell. Now, verse 9, we're going to look at verse 9 and 10. Because these are two, I think, problem passages, quote unquote, that um, I think w- could serve as a good example. of How would we read a text in light of the crucified and risen Jesus, that maybe on the surface of that original text that we don't quite see that. Maybe we see actually a contrary image of God. So verse 9, Nor let us tempt Christ, as some of them did, also tempt, uh, as some of them also tempted, and were destroyed by serpents. Nor complain, as some of them also complained, and were destroyed by the destroyer. So first Paul tells the story, mentions the story of the bronze serpent. This is verse 9, found in Numbers 21. You can go back and read that. We're not going to read that. It's a fairly famous story, right? But in that original story, Israel complains against God for bringing them out of Egypt and into the wilderness where there's no food and no water. And this is not the first time they've made such a complaint, right? That that complaint comes up numerous times. We find a similar complaint in, in Exodus 17, in the first few verses there, uh, and Paul saw, which Paul also retells in, in verse 4, right? That's the, the water and the rock that, that I'd kind of spoken about. So Paul is drawing from these stories, right? And again, he he interprets the rock as Christ, which we've already kind of, enumerated here. But in that Numbers 21 story, God doesn't give the people what they ask for, um, as he did in a similar story in, in uh, Exodus 17. Instead, this time, God sends a plague of serpents. This is Numbers 21. And these vipers, they swarm the camp and they bite countless Israelites. A plague breaks out. Moses runs and he intercedes for the people and the Lord speaks to him and says, fashion a serpent made of bronze and lift it up. And when you lift up the serpent on a pole, all who look on it will be healed and they will be saved from death. And so now a few observations here, and this is where reading slowly and carefully 
is, a, is an important uh, practice. When Paul retells the story in 1 Corinthians 10.9, he does something very subtle, but I think very informative. He omits any mention of the servant of the, the serpents being a judgment from God. Instead, he simply says that those who tested Christ, again, tested Christ, were destroyed by the serpents. That's what he says, that those who tested Christ, because he's equating the God of Israel with Christ. They are one and the same. They are not different. Okay, again, this is a crucial point. For him, the crucified and risen Jesus is the God of Numbers, is the God of Exodus, and they are one and the same. And so those who tempted him, complained against him, they were destroyed by the serpents. Now, what are we to make of this? Is Paul simply assuming that his readers will interpret, you know, the serpents as God's judgment? Is he just summarizing? Is he just blowing through it? Or is something something else maybe going on? If we read the passage in the light of Jesus, the crucified and risen Jesus, I think what Paul is doing comes in to focus a little bit clearer. I think Paul is reading the numbers story in light of Jesus's own words in John chapter 3 verse 14. Now, remember, 1 Corinthians, this is actually important. 1 Corinthians is written before John. So John the Gospel of John has not been written yet. 1 Corinthians is written first, meaning Paul is already interpreting the scriptures this way. This this tradition, this hermeneutic, this way of engaging with Israel's scriptures is already out there. So it's not as if Paul is just referencing you know, John's work and just copying him. No, there, this is already out and he's already thinking this way. But in John 3, 14... Jesus references this exact same story. And the question is, where does Jesus place himself in the story? If Jesus is reading this Numbers 21 story, where does he place himself in it? Well, Jesus says, he's saying this to Nicodemus, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Paul sees Christ in this same way, as the serpent lifted up above the world and overcoming the work of sin and death. And the serpent obviously has tons of connotations, most probably famously and notably back to Genesis 3, the one who came in and brought death. So Christ is going to be the serpent. He's going to take on our sin. He's going to take on our death. He's going to assume our form, and he's going to be lifted up in our place, not as if the Father is punishing him. We'll get to this in a second, but as the one who takes death upon himself so that he tramples down death by death. He turns death inside out. He's, he goes into death and blows all the way through it and overcomes it and leads captivity captive. All of these passages and scriptures come into play. So because Paul sees Jesus as the true serpent of Moses, he omits the part of the story that claims that the serpents were an act of God's wrath 
because, and this is the key point, because that would pit the work of the Father against the Son. Again, and Jesus does the same thing here. That would be saying that Jesus comes and saves us from the Father. So if we were to just read that kind of uh, overly literally, I would say, and not in the light of Jesus, it seems like the Father is sending the serpents to kill everyone, but then Moses would go to the Father, and the Father just gives Moses the way to save everyone from the plague of serpents that he just sent. And Jesus would, if we place Jesus in that story as the serpent lifted up on the pole, now the serpent Jesus, the serpent on the pole, Jesus is just saving us from the plague of the Father. And sadly, this is how many people, what many people think, and I've mentioned this in numerous episodes, and I, I, I will probably continue to say it in future ones, that the cross is not the place in which the Son saves us from the Father. Right? Jesus is not saving us from the curse that the Father sent. Jesus is not saving us from the hand of his Father. He's not saving us from the hand of God. And we know this is not the case because Jesus goes on in the very next verse, in verses 15 and 16 of John 3, and he says, because it's God loved the world this way. How do we know that God loved the world? Because Jesus died on the cross. And it's not just this is how we know. It's, and Father John Baer, the Orthodox theologian, points this out. He goes, it's not just this is how we know that God loved us. It's that in this way God loved us, that this is the way in which God loved us, that Jesus died for us. So God the Father is not pouring out his wrath and anger and fury upon Jesus on the cross and God because God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. Jesus was not saving the world from the plague of the Father. He was saving the world from the plague of sin and death. That's the plague. The plague is the serpent of sin and death. And so did God send those serpents in Numbers 21? Well, the text says so, but Paul seems, and Jesus, seem to indicate something else might be going on. Because again, he here in, in 1 Corinthians 10, like Jesus, places the work of God in the act of the bronze serpent being lifted up in order to save and heal. Paul sees God's hand bringing life to those being plagued by death it's not the other way around. So it's, I, some, I know early church fathers and theologians pointed out that the sin at hand was the sin of complaining and grumbling. So it was a sin of the tongue. And so the, the plague that came upon them was uh, death by bite, death by the mouth, by the tongue. So it was poisonous tongues complaining against God and it was that same sin working against them and in the in the asps in the the snakes it was poisonous tongues killing them and so Jesus comes to save us from that work by uh, overcoming the word of death by being the word of life so maybe something like that's going on there but at the end of the day here's what I think we can say with some certainty that Paul hangs his theological hat on the salvific work of Christ, where he took on our form, became the true bronze serpent, 
was lifted up in the desert so that we could be freed from sin and death. That's what Paul hangs his theological hat on. Okay. In the next verse, Paul tells and, and references a second story. I'll just reread this one verse here. Verse 10, 1 Corinthians 10, 10. Nor complain, as some of them also complained, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Here, Paul is actually meshing a couple Old Testament stories together. Okay, he exhorts us, don't complain, as some did when they were destroyed by the destroyer. The reference to complaining is most likely Numbers 16. Okay, and he's already referenced the complaining of numbers multiple times. That's why I think that that's probably what's going on there. And I'm, uh, that's a pretty um, uh, common opinion. But there's no destroyer mentioned in number 16. So what is that? That reference most likely comes from the 10th plague of Egypt. And now we're getting to one of the biggies here in the Old Testament. I mean... There's only a handful of stories um, that evoke the image of God as violent, you know, to to the, the highest level. The, the flood would be one of them probably. And then it, you might just go right to the 10th plague where God sends, the, the story says God sends this angel of death to kill all the firstborn of Egypt and Israel's obviously commanded to put blood over the doorpost, right? And this is, I mean, this is the story of the Exodus. This is the central story of Israel's scriptures. The And this is, again, why I think this is an important text for us on figuring out how to read in 1 Corinthians. One, because Paul says these are examples, but two, Paul draws from, especially in this passage, he draws from the central story of the Old Testament, and that's the Exodus. He draws from the central story, the foundational story of all stories of really all of the Scripture is the Exodus. Even Jesus' own crucifixion is framed by the Exodus. I mean, he is called the Passover lamb. He, he is, it's during the feast of the Passover that Jesus dies, right? So even his death is framed in the story of the Exodus. So this reference to the story is most likely from Exodus 12, 23, where we read, For the Lord will pass through and strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lentil and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and not allow the destroyer to come into your houses to strike you. Now, at first glance, this verse seems very strange within the immediate context of Exodus 12. And what's striking is the the Lord was said to not allow the destroyer to enter any of the marked houses, those that were marked by blood. So, in this single verse, it seems as if the Lord is actually working to save life rather than to take it. Okay, so just reread the verse there in Exodus 12. It says, The Lord will pass through to strike Idris. So the Lord is the active agent here. 
And when he sees, the Lord sees the blood on the doorpost, the Lord will pass over the door. But then what is the action of the Lord? The Lord will not allow the destroyer to come into the house to strike you. Do you see the change there? So at the beginning of the verse, it says the Lord is going to go through and strike everyone, strike the Egyptians. But when he sees any blood, the Lord's actually going to work against this other entity, this other force, this other figure called the destroyer. And he's actually going to preserve life by holding back the destroyer from allowing the destroyer to come in. So it's not so there's multiple characters going on here. So who who is this destroyer? Well Paul I think is and and Paul obviously when he's quoting the Exodus story Paul pulls out this single verse. This is the only time in the Exodus narrative that this destroyer figure is seen. It's mentioned one, Paul mentions it one other time in the New Testament, but otherwise this is it. And in Exodus, there's just, he, the destroyer shows up in this one verse, Exodus 12, 23. So Paul reading scriptures in the light of Christ lifts this destroyer character from the one story and merges it with another story containing God's judgment. Again, in Numbers, and the writer of Hebrews in 11.28 also references the destroyer as the one who brought death to the firstborn of Egypt. So Paul's not the only one doing this here. What is going on in, in this passage? Paul and I think the writer of Hebrews, they seem to attribute the tenth plague to the destroyer rather than to God's own hand. Right? I mean, they could write this story any way they want, and there's a bunch of verses that they could write that they could they could quote i mean paul could have quoted just earlier in the same verse that he did and it would sound as if god was the one doing it but he and the writer of hebrews specifically pick out this single verse where god is actually the agent of salvation and the destroyer is the agent of death and that's the one they lift out why and i think it's because in christ we know That is the devil that comes to steal, kill, and destroy. And Christ comes to bring life to the world by taking on the angel of death on the cross and overcoming it in his resurrection. Okay, so again, just like the first example, when we read this in the light of the crucified Christ, this makes perfect sense that on the cross, Jesus as our Passover lamb, right? So when Jesus is reading himself into this story all over the Gospels, who is he? He's the lamb that's slain whose blood is put over us so that death passes over us. He enters death for us so that death passes over us. He's not the agent of death or the father is not the agent of death that Jesus is saving us from. The, the devil and death itself are our enemies that Jesus is overcoming by his death, through his death, so that in that we can actually have his life. And, and even in the Exodus story, they, they ate the lamb. So they slaughtered it and then they were to eat it at midnight in the middle of the night. And so in the same way, we partake of the body of Christ in the Eucharist. We partake of Jesus and we partake of his flesh so that as we partake of his death in by, by eating his flesh, we are given his life. 
So on the cross, Jesus, as our Passover lamb, was not taking the death blow of the Father in order to save the world from his wrath. He was overcoming death by allowing death to do its worst to him. Jesus was not killed at the hand of God the Father. He was killed at the hands of wicked and evil men, fueled by the demonic principalities and powers who are always trying to destroy God's good world. Jesus was killed by the destroyer, you could say. And to read the Passover story correctly, we cannot hear the cries of wailing Egyptian mothers mourning the death of their sons and say that it came from the hand of God. The father of Jesus is not the bringer of death. The wages of sin is death, and the devil is the one roaming around trying to kill. So who entered the homes of the Egyptians? John identifies Jesus as the Passover lamb whose blood saves his people from sin and death and the true Pharaoh of the world. Again, so it's the destroyer, it's the enemy, the one that enters into homes and kills. So again, it seems like Paul is hanging his theological hat on Christ's saving work on the cross. So those are two examples of how I think we can read in light of Jesus. We can read from Jesus and we can read for Jesus. And two ways in which I think, I think I, I, hopefully I laid out a compelling case in which Paul is actually doing that same thing. That Paul is reading these stories, these foundational stories. And he is shining. He's not making things up. He's not winging it. He's not bending and just breaking rules left and right. No, he is taking the, the, the spotlight that is the crucified and risen Jesus, and he's shining it back on his own scriptures, and he's seeing what has always been there. And he's, new worlds of possibility are opening up for him because of now we know what God is like. We know that God is like Jesus, and that God has always been like Jesus, and that God always will be like Jesus. I mean, if we wanted to talk about, you know, a future one here, we'll just do this one. We'll just do this one off the top of my head really quickly. In Revelation 19, right, because I said earlier, I think in the previous episode, most people basically view Old Testament God as angry and that's, and then second coming Jesus as angry, right? And both are just, Sorry, I just touched the mic. Both are you know, kind of out for blood for anyone who's against them. But if we were to read, when we read Revelation 19, the climactic battle scene of the book of Revelation, we see Jesus coming back, right? Um, depending on, I mean, everything in Revelation is disputed and how to understand it, but most people see it as, Jesus coming back. He's riding a horse. He's got the tattoo on his thigh, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. But interestingly, it says Jesus's robe is dipped in blood and he has a sword, but the sword does not come, is not in his hand to slay his enemies in that way. The sword comes from his mouth. 
right? This is verse, uh, verse 13 in Revelation 19. And he was clothed with a robe dipped in blood. Dipped in blood. So the robe is not filled with the blood of his enemies as he kills them. First of all, this is before the battle starts. This is him coming back. So the battle hasn't started yet. Secondly, it's not blood that has been spattered on him by his enemies. It's been dipped in blood. It's his own blood, I think is the point. It's been dipped in his own blood. The blood that he has died as the Lamb of God that we saw in chapter 4. I looked and behold a lamb that is slain, but he was standing. So he was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name was called the Word of God. And the armies uh, in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, they followed him on white horses. And now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword that he would strike the nations. So he's not striking down people with a sword in his hand in a physical sense. It's, what's his name? His name is the word of God. His robe is dipped in blood and it's the sword of his word. The word, the preaching of the gospel that is coming out of his mouth. It's the proclamation of the word, of the gospel, of the one who is righteous and true and the king and the Lord whose robe is dipped in blood, the slain lamb that is going forth into the nations. Now, how you want to connect that to the rest of the book of Revelation is a whole nother, I mean, that's not just a podcast episode, that's a whole podcast in and of itself. But the point here is, is I think this is, uh, again, written by John, um, I think by, well, there's some debate of whether it's the same John or a different John. I think it's the same John that wrote the gospel. Um, He's pulling on these same images. There's Psalm 45 being pulled from here. There's other New Testament texts being pulled from here. Right, the the word of God is like a sharp two-edged sword, right? And so we get these same images going on, but they're all they're all wrote uh, uh, written and read in the light of the crucified and risen Jesus. So he's not the king that slays with a sword in his hand and whose enemy's blood gets on his robe. No, he's the one who, before any battle begins dies for his enemies, dips his own robe in blood, and then speaks his word to them as the true king, and that's what goes forth into the nations, right? So there's, it's imagery here that is actually needs to be read and understood in light of the crucified Jesus. But anyway, so that's, that's how I would do and do try and read some of the, I guess you would say, violent texts or hard texts or difficult texts in light of the crucified and risen Jesus. Now, you probably have tons of questions. Some of you actually, I mean, some of you anyway, probably have tons of questions. And this does open up more questions and more things to wrestle with. And I would just say that that's okay. We can have those conversations too. So, Hopefully this has been somewhat helpful. If there's a story, maybe this is opening up Pandora's box here, but if there's a story or a passage that you're like, how would you read this in light of Jesus? Go ahead and shoot me an email or a voice message. Uh, You can find all of that information in the description 
below in the show notes. And otherwise, hopefully this has been helpful for you. And uh, make sure you hit the subscribe button so that the next uh, episode comes directly to you. And uh, again, if I think this is a, a conversation that many people um, would benefit from. And so uh, feel free to send this on to friends as well. And with that, I will say we will see you next time when we continue talking about how to read the scriptures on the road to Emmaus. See you later. Thank you.